have you have you ever heard of the preacher Charles Spurgeon? He's um, probably one of the best-known English-speaking preachers in the 1800s. Was in the city of London, and when he was a young man, he was going to head to his church service, but it was snowing so bad, he uh, just decided to go to the closest church he could find. He went down this little alleyway, and when he went down this little alleyway, there was a little Methodist church right in the middle of this town square. Walked in there, there's only 12 people in the church because it was so snowy. And he said they were singing their lungs out, but then when it was time for the preacher to come up, he couldn't make it, so they had no preacher. And then an old man came up, said he could, he, was, he could barely read, but he took the pulpit, opened up to this verse, it's in the book of Isaiah 45:22, and here's what it says. It says, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And he said the man just quote, spoke on it, maybe five, ten minutes, but that one verse, look unto me, all ye be saved, all the ends of the earth. The idea is that here I am, the one who hung on a cross for you. Look on me. The same way that Moses lifted that serpent in the desert to heal people from their snake bites, Jesus hung on the cross, and whoever looked on him were healed from their sin. And he said that day in that little tiny church, in the middle of a snowstorm, this man got saved, and he went on to lead hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. And what God chooses to use in our mind is a lot different than what we would imagine him using. Even a day like this, snowy out there, and some churches have said, well, let's not meet. And it's not that we're better that we meet, but the gospel is worth it, I think. The message that this man came in the form of a baby called the Incarnation, means putting on flesh so that he could grow up and become your sacrifice on a cross, that's worth celebrating and talking about. So thank you for coming, and my prayer is that this message, it's the final message in the book of Ruth, would really hit you and help you to see that this plan of salvation of a man coming to die for you, it's been foreshadowed for thousands of years, all through this book, been talked about. But before we start, I just would ask, I want to ask God to just open up scripture for you so you will see his incredible handiwork in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, that song, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. And I think every one of us in here, if we were honest, you know, push aside all of our complaining and um, maybe not everything's exactly how we want it in America, but you've been so good. You've been so good. And Father God, I want to th say thank you for sending your son for me. Your perfect son, you let him leave heaven for all of us. And I'm not sure any any uh, parent would want their son to come to this earth to die for other people, but you did. And so, God, we just want to say thank you. I just have two prayer requests, really simple. Number one, uh, give, give my words strength and power that they would resonate in hearts. And then the second thing, God, is I pray, I really do, I pray that somebody in here or watching 
would consider the gospel maybe for the first time. That they would see it as a direct gift to them. The greatest gift we've ever been offered. But God, I can't do that on my own. I need your Holy Spirit to do that work. So Holy Spirit, we just ask you to convict. And Father, ultimately we just want to say, may this bring praise to your Son's name because he deserves it. And Jesus, thank you. Jesus, I know you can hear me. Thank you for even giving me an opportunity to tell people how great you are. You're good. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, could you open up in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth? We're in the very last chapter. And if you haven't been with us, you may be wondering, the book of Ruth is our Christmas message. And the reason is very simple. This is a big book. We call this the Bible. It's it's composed of what I call two parts. The Old Testament, which means the Old Testimony of God. It's all of the prophets who wrote down their stories before Jesus came in the flesh. That's the Old Testament. Then you have the New Testament. New Testament is from the moment Jesus was born until the last book of Revelation when Jesus is going to come back. That's the New Testament. Both of these combined together make up our scriptures or the Bible. There's 66 authors, but they all really are saying the same story. And Ruth says the same story, but let me give it to you really quickly because some of you may not know this, but it's, there's four parts. Part one of the Bible is very simple. Everything God created is good. So the first part is creation. The things he made, this world he made, you, in the eyes of God, are good. The way he makes things are beautiful, wonderful. Problem is, the second part of the story, something entered into his creation called sin. And it's from the bottom, it's like dry rot. It corroded everything. And it started through Adam's first sin, and it went into all human beings, and it's called the fall. That means the, it's really the breaking of the beautiful statue that God made of man. So if creation is good, and then the fall, sin came in and broke everything. On this side of the story, you have what's called redemption. He had to buy us back out of our sin to try to restore us back to what he he originally wanted. But it cost something. There's a payment. Had to be made. And after that payment is made, everybody now is invited back to what is called the consummation, where he wants to bring the original creation back, but better than it ever was. That's the four parts of the Bible. And someday we're going to, those of us who have accepted Christ as our payment for our sin, are going to see him face to face in heaven walking golden streets with a brand new body. That's called the consummation. The book of Ruth is actually the same story. It's told, it's a love story, four parts, very small, short little story between this lady named Ruth and her husband named Boaz. But the beginning of the story was this lady named Naomi. I like to imagine her, just an older lady with gray hair. She had a husband named Elimelech and two sons. It's kind of like at the beginning of the story, things were great. But then her husband died Her sons died, they left the country in the fall. It was just depression. So at the end of chapter 1, which we called Famine in the Land, they were in a part of the fall of the story. It was depression. Chapter 2 and 3, this guy showed up. His name's Boaz. Boaz is this rich landowner that 
fell in love with Ruth. And we haven't got to the part of the story yet, but he became what's called the kinsman redeemer. He's the one we're going to talk a little bit about today that is able not only to marry Ruth, but to buy Naomi's land, to buy it all back because she lost it because her husband died. Part four is today, the, the consummation, the promise comes true. So if you can open up to chapter four, we're going to read it and then I'm going to walk through it and hopefully, Keith, I'll let you go home to open your presents. I have a feeling, Keith, you got some Legos from your kids. Ruth chapter 4 begins by saying, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer, he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Here's what's happening. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. Boaz wants to buy all of Naomi's land because he can. He's what's called a kinsman redeemer. He's related to Naomi. He's related to Ruth by basically Ruth's original husband was his cousin. And in the Jewish law, he's allowed to not only buy Naomi's land, but to marry Ruth. That's what that kinsman redeemer is all about. But there was another one that was also able to do it. So he is going to go talk to him. Because Boaz is in love with Ruth. Verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite. Malon's widow is my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. 
He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living near there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then we'll talk about the genealogy. This is the last chapter. So we just have two parts. The title of this is basically, The Baby Arrives. The first part was famine in the land. Second part is the amber waves of grain. They had a harvest Last week, if you remember, there was a scandal at the threshing floor, and then this is the time that the baby arrived. But I, I just want to begin with verse 1. If you remember last week, Ruth went to the threshing floor to tell Boaz that she would like him to be her kinsman redeemer. And if you look, verse 15 of chapter 3, he said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. He gave her six measures of barley. But at the very end, verse 18, Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Boaz represents the man who's going to redeem it. She asked him. She said, will you redeem me? She lied by his feet, asked her to cover her with his shawl, which means I want you to be my redeemer, my protector, my guardian. And he said, I'm going to get it done as soon as possible. I just want you to see in verse 1, Boaz went up to town of chapter 4 and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer had mentioned came along. He said, come over here and sit down. He wants things done now. I just want to just talk about a general principle of Scripture based on this. When you pray, when you go to Jesus as your kinsman redeemer, when you go to God with a request, he doesn't wait on it. He's not up there saying, if I have some time, I'll just wait. He's like Boaz. He goes right to work. In fact, Scripture says God is always working. Even this moment, He's always at work. And because He's at work, Jesus is at work. Because Jesus is at work, the Holy Spirit's at work. They're three in one. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But He's always working. In the book of Daniel, the Daniel the prophet, he prayed. The moment he prayed, an angel was sent to be the answer to his prayer. In the same way, Naomi and Ruth go to Boaz and said, will you redeem us? And he went right to work. And I want you to know, you might be sitting in here and you might not believe in God. I've prayed so many years, he doesn't even hear me. The moment you pray, God goes to work. That's who he is. I love the end of verse th uh, chapter 3 when it says, the man will not rest until the matter's settled. I believe that is the heart of God. He will not rest until the matter's settled. And specifically, when it comes to salvation, that's his full-time job is to save people. He wants to be your hero, your rescuer. I think God gets a kick out of rescuing us. You think making the planets and the stars, they were nothing compared to going to work to get you saved. He loves it. Remember, my dad was a busy man, and he had his office in the basement. In his office in the basement, he had these studs in the basement and then put up drywall and then this, this little door, and he had a little window in there. 
But when my dad was in that office and it was locked, he put on this little sign that says, do not disturb. And if I was going down there as a kid, my mom would say, when your dad's down there and it says, do not disturb, that means he's got important phone calls, don't bug him. So as a little kid, I'd be down there and I wanted to have him play pool or something, but he was behind there, do not disturb. So I didn't want to disturb him because he had business. God the Father, when, he's, when you pray, he closes the door to everybody else and says, do not disturb because you're his business. Your life, your salvation is his business. And when you pray to him, there is no, there's no other thing he wants to deal with than that. And if you don't, sometimes I think, here's our job. I was reading this book about evangelism. It says evangelism isn't winning arguments. Aha, I told you so. I proved to you that God, that God lives and alive. He says our job as evangelists is try to, we are trying to convince people that are not believers that the God we believe in is not, is not the God they think we believe in. The God people think we believe in is this old, angry doesn't want to be disturbed, leave me alone kind of God, and he's just the opposite. The God that exists right now who sent his son for you wants you to bug him. He can't wait for it. So let's continue on. I just have two parts to the story. first part is the trial, and then the second part is the child. But there's a public trial going on. And I want you to notice there is, so Boaz in verse 1 he had to go because there was another kinsman redeemer. And if you look at verse um, look at verse 12 of chapter 3. So it starts in verse 11. Ruth asked Boaz to marry, or basically be my kinsman redeemer. Verse 11, Boaz says to her, Now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all you ask. All the people in my town know your woman and noble character. Now look at verse 12. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, so I can redeem you, there is another who's more closely related to I. So what he's saying is he says, I got to first talk to this guy, and if he doesn't want to marry you, then I'll marry you. So in the Jewish mind, to purchase land, you got to do it legally. It has to be done right. So Boaz does the right thing. He goes to the city gate and he makes this proposition. And the first thing is he has witnesses. Look at verse 2. So Boaz took ten of the elders in town and said, sit here, and they did so. And the city gate is right outside the main town. That's where they dealt with all the business and all the law of the town. He gets ten important people to sit because in Jewish law, you need truth to be established by two or more witnesses. This is going to be important for the reason why Jesus had to come. But in Jewish law, something is not true unless there's witnesses. You can't just have your own truth. You can't just say, I just want to believe this. It has to be true. And it has to be confirmed by two or more witnesses. And then the second thing, he comes up to this guy and he says, you can purchase Naomi's land if you want but he's setting him up and the guy's like I think I can do it but he doesn't tell him that something else comes with this Ruth the Moabitess he's got to marry this lady from Moab and if you look at verse 
5, Boaz said, on the day you buy that land from Naomi, if you're going to buy the land, you also acquire Ruth, and then it says the Moabite. Every time you see the word Moabite in this book, it's kind of, it's kind of a slam on her. He's trying to say, hey, this might compromise your fine standing in town. You sure you want to marry her? He's setting them up because he wants to marry Ruth. So he's trying to make her look as bad as, you sure you want to marry that broad? She's from Moab. You don't want to marry that Moabite. Oh, she's from Moab. And he gets a little nervous. Look at this. He says, uh, uh, verse 6, he, uh, maybe not, maybe not. I don't want to endanger my own estate. Oh, she's from where? Moab. Moab. Okay, all right. you can have her. Go ahead, you can take her. That's all Boaz wanted. He's setting her up because he loved her. He wanted to buy her. But basically, if Boaz, if this Redeemer didn't accept her, there was only one other person that could, and that's Boaz. There's nobody else. Not just anybody in the Jewish tradition can buy back what's lost. To have the ability to redeem, you need to have the legal rights to do so. Here, why is this so important? We live in a day and age. We live in a time where people think they can believe whatever they want. That there's no, there's no rules. I can be whoever I want. I can believe in whatever I want. And you know what? I'm going to go to heaven. How do you know? Because I just want to go to heaven. Did you know in the mind of God, he's got very specific rules about those who are going to live forever. Two very specific rules. Number one, heaven is a place where God lives. And God is holy. He's holy. And in his holiness, he cannot live with people that are corrupted with sin. So you remember part two, the fall? If anybody is sin in their life, they cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Yeah, but who is he? Who is he to tell me what is right or wrong? He's God. He set up the rules. In the same way, you just can't marry anybody you want in the Jewish tradition. You just can't get in heaven because you want to. You can't just be any gender just because you want to. There's specific rules. We have this idea in our day and age, whatever I want is just true. That's called freedom. No, no, no. That's called anarchy. God has specific rules. And it says in Habakkuk, he's so holy, you cannot enter his presence if there's any ounce of sin. So there's a second rule. Either you die for your sin or somebody who is sinless dies for your sin. In order for somebody to take your place, they have to be perfect. There has to be perfect. And there's an Old Testament verse in Isaiah that says, God is looking around. There's no one. There's no one out there. And he's appalled that there's no one to intervene. He's talking about for the sinful condition of the world compared to God. So... God decided to do it himself. He achieved salvation on his own. Do you know how he achieved salvation on his own? He sent his son, who is God. That means he's perfect. In the form of a baby, putting on human flesh, so he could represent us to die. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is the day that God brought justice. He's the only one that could do it. 
The only one that brought salvation. So the reason we celebrate Jesus' coming is because you would be lost without Him. There's a really interesting verse. I, wanna, I want you to go to this. This is really interesting. Go to Exodus 19.21. I was just, this is, might seem off the beaten path, but I want you to get a glimpse of God a second. So Exodus 19, it's the chapter right before the Ten Commandments. Did you, did you ever watch the Ten Commandments with Charles Heston and Moses? God comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have other, any other gods before you. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Thou shalt not steal, commit adultery. The Ten Commandments is the moral code of God. Before he did that, chapter 19 is Mount Sinai where those, where those commands were given. God said Moses is going to go to Mount Sinai, but nobody else is allowed to touch the mountain. Why? Because he's holy and only Moses is allowed there. And so in verse, verse 21, he gives a warning. Listen to what, he, what the warning says. So chapter 19, verse 20, the Lord descended on top of Mount Sinai and called to Moses on the top of the mountain because he's going to deliver the law. This is God's law for mankind. So Moses went up, verse 21, the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. So what he's saying is, Moses, you can come up to the mountain, but go down and tell the people, if they try to force their way through, if they try to play by their own rules, if try, they try to make up it as they go, they're all going to die. You've got to follow God's law. We live in a day and age, everybody's trying to force their way into heaven. They're trying to force their moral codes on everybody else, but there's, you, you got to be careful. He's holy, and God's way is through his Son, and that's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth on him, believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. You, you don't think that's it? Go to Acts chapter 4. There is no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved. And so I bring this up because there's this idea that we can just force our way in. Why? Because I want to. I want to be, I want to do it my way. I'll do funerals. All the time I'll do funerals. And people will say stuff like this to me. Like their, their, their family, a lot of times, they don't believe in God. They're not necessarily the, you know, the best people in the world, but the people come up to me crying and go, my, my little Johnny's an angel flying in heaven. Don't you think so? Because they cry, they're supposed to get into heaven? Because you love them, they should make it through heaven. It has nothing to do with you and your sentimentality. It has everything to do with the law of God, and if you're not pure, you can't face a holy God. Don't touch the mountain. And you're saying, why are you making such a big deal about this? this? It's very simple. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And you can't force your way in. But if you have Jesus, you have everything. And that's where part two comes in. The promised child. The promised child, if we go back to Ruth, 
Do you remember the very beginning of this book of Ruth? I said, really, this isn't about Ruth. This is about Naomi, this book. What did Naomi want? You remember what I said? A grandbaby. Ruth wanted a grandbaby. This is the chapter where Ruth gets her grandbaby. Do you remember how they talked about Ruth at the very beginning? Ruth was bitter. She was sad. She, she was empty. This, she is all of the ladies now. Look at verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons has given him birth. But verse 14 is kind of like the story of the shepherds. The angels came and they said, Joy to the world, the Lord is... There's nothing but joy. Verse 14 is Ruth's version of joy to to the world. The child's been born. What's his name? In verse 16, his name is Obed. Obed means the servant of God. He has come to be the servant of God. This child is amazing. What's so special about this baby? He is a type of Christ. So, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament are stories that are always pointing to the story. Things happen in the Old Testament that are shadows of the reality that are coming. Obed is a type of Christ. I'll show you why. First reason why is look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. So Boaz married Ruth. He got the property and then he got the woman. He marries her. In my new NIV version, I I don't know if I like the way they wrote it. But it says he made love to her. I don't know if I should be able to read that on Christmas Day. But he was with his wife. The Lord enabled her to conceive. Who enabled her to conceive? The Lord enabled her to conceive. Do you remember the first time Ruth was married? How many years were her and her husband married before he died? Ten years. Shannon, how do you know all these answers? Who said that? Teresa said that. This, right here, this group, these three all listen, right here. But, (laughs) I'll give you some mints later on. But basically, basically, Ruth, for ten years, her womb was closed. She couldn't have children. Boaz married her. The next line is, she's able to conceive. He opened her womb. In the same way, there's this other lady named Mary, who was a virgin. And he says, you're going to be with a child. How? Well, the Lord is going to overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you will be a child. Every, every child that is born is a miracle. Every conception is a miracle. By the way, I don't think Trevor announced it. Did you guys know Will Snyder and Emmy had their baby? Ezekiel what? Ezekiel Charles. I bet you he'll be six foot eight, the size of Will. That's a miracle. That's why we are pro-life. It's a miracle of God. He allows people to conceive. Second thing about this Obed, look what it says. When this baby comes, verse 15, he will 
It's talking to Naomi. The ladies are talking to Naomi, singing a song to her. This child will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. That phrase, renew your life, he's going to, it's almost like you're going to be born again. The Old Testament Hebrew has this idea, she is going to be made brand new when this baby arrives. Hope is going to be restored into her heart. There's another child that comes, and this one is going to save his people from their sin. When you believe in Jesus, you are born anew. Third thing about this Obed, it says at the end of 16, he is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And then it goes into this long lineage. Look at verse 18. Then this is the family line of Perez. Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadad. Abinadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Why does this matter? Because lineage matters to the Jews because promise travels through lineage. Promise travels through lineage. Who, what's the big deal about David? David becomes the father of Jesus through lineage. Why is that a big deal? Because David was the first king of Israel, and he so pleased God the Father that in the book of 2 Samuel, God the Father said to David, you are going to have an heir, and that heir is going to sit on the throne forever. King David, you please God so much, you're going to have a son that's your heir, and that son is going to sit on the throne of God forever. So this baby, born in Bethlehem, oh, about a thousand and a half years after this story, this baby is from the lineage of David. This baby, it says in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, on him the government will rest on his shoulders. This son is that heir of David who's going to reign on the throne forever. That's why we call him a king. Messiah, Christ, means king, anointed one. Son of David. Everything in our Bible points to Jesus. Everything. Because in Jesus is everything. So I was reading a couple commentaries, and one commentary summed up the whole book of Ruth like this. And I want you to look at what this person said. And then I'm going to apply it to you. So when you think of Ruth, who would have forecast, predicted, such a destiny for a Moabite immigrant? What's that mean? So here's Ruth, who is not born a Jew, who is outside of the promises of Israel, becomes the grandmother of, great-grandmother of David. Who would have thought that? She's an immigrant. That means she's not part of the promises. Who is she? She's a nobody. In other words, who would have thought a nobody would have such an incredible destiny? You know what that phrase? That's me right there. Who would have thought a nobody from Cleveland would have a destiny where I can walk the golden streets of heaven for all eternity? 
you don't know how much a nobody I was. I was worse than, worse than Ruth. But because this man named Jesus came into the world, and I heard the gospel, that Chris, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved, which means you will be redeemed, so that sin has been paid for, and I can live in heaven for all eternity, and I'm going to get a brand new body. Look what the rest says. With what generosity Yahweh, that is the Lord, that's Father, when we say God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we usually regard Yahweh as the Father of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. With what generosity Yahweh rewards those who seek refuge under His wings. When Jesus is made alive in your life, you're not just a mere human. I want to show you something amazing about this book. I read it. Go back to Ruth. But I want to show you something. It's, it's even greater than female empowerment. It's, it's amazing. You'll see what I'm talking about, Missy. No laughing. So, look at verse 15. Just take a look at this phrase. You've got to get the impact of this. You hear all the time that the Bible's a patriarchal book. They care less about women. They don't really matter. So all of the women gather on Naomi while she's cuddling this chubby little baby named Obed. She's probably putting his cheek up to hers, listening to his heartbeat, because the reality of her, of her dream is in her hands. The promise is real. And all of these ladies are seeing the joy of Naomi. And then they say this to her. Your daughter-in-law, talking about Ruth, the Moabitess, who loves you. Because Ruth, remember she said, I will not leave you. Your God will be my God. Ruth and Naomi had some kind of relationship. Your daughter-in-law, who loves you, you could say it like this, is better than seven sons. Do you know what the dream of every Jewish woman was? Was to have seven sons. It's the perfect number. And sons carry your lineage. They carry power and strength. And she's saying, you know this Ruth lady who is a Moabitess? She's better than having seven sons. This lady is better than anything you could ever dream about. How does this Moabitess have such significance? Because when you are with God, he can bless you in ways you just can't even imagine. If you think your life stinks, man, when Jesus transforms it, it's incredible. It's utterly incredible what people can do after Christ takes over their life. So you have Jackie right there. I never met when I before I came the before I came to this church, I'm just a Really, Jackie, if you would have known me in Cleveland, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Nothing to do with me. I come here, and I'm just a dinky little pastor, and for some reason, Jackie kind of adopted me to be a part of her family. Her husband just died. I was able to do his funeral, and she comes up this morning and gives me just a gift, his watch. She gives me his watch. Why would she do that? Why would somebody who I really never met say, you know what? You are a good pastor, and I appreciate you. What an honor that was. 
what God can do to your life, you just can't believe it. You're like, what, it's just a lot? No, that, for some reason, I'm respect. I don't know why. I didn't do nothing. I think it's the Spirit of God. When He comes upon you, people see it. They recognize it. Some of you don't believe in God. Some of you don't. Because you think, I'm just a, you know, I'm just an image. I'm nothing. Who would have forecast such a destiny? I don't know. The gospel is very simple. And maybe like Charles Spurgeon, you just need somebody to say it simply. Some old man come up here and say, all the, all the ends of the earth can be saved. Here's how you're saved. You were born in the image of God. He put his image on you, which means you're more precious than anything. But sin has come into your life. Not only are you born in sin because sin passes on us, but we've all sinned. We've all failed. Some of us feel like we're a Moabite, an immigrant. Because we've sinned, we're miserable. But because God so loved you, he sent Jesus in the form of a baby so he could grow up to be a man, so he could die for you. Because he loves you. If you, in this moment, believe in him, you can have eternal life, which means that first person that you are intended to be cannot just be restored, but made better. Psalm says, God has rescued me out of a pit. This is Psalm 103, verse, I think, 2. He's rescued me out of a pit, and he's crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercy. Not only am I no longer in the pit, but he's crowned me. When I got saved, I didn't just get out of the pit, I sat on the throne. Loving kindness, Dr. J. Vernon McGee would say this, loving kindness is so much better than love. You know what love is? Love is when you get bread and butter. But loving kindness is when your mom gives you bread, butter, and honey. Salvation is bread, butter, honey, chocolates, marshmallows, everything. You get it all in Christ. The question is, have you accepted him? Or are you too good for this story? I want to have my own story. Good luck talking, touching the mountain on your own. You're not going to survive. I'm going to, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to say thank God for this Christmas day. Let's pray.